this, you're going to need to open to Luke chapter 7 and then put a marker or a ribbon in Luke 7 and open up to Matthew chapter 8. We're going to be reading from those two texts tonight, Luke chapter 7 and Matthew chapter 8. And while you're opening your Bibles and getting all settled, let me just say how good it is to be with you. I've heard a lot of great things about this congregation here through the years, and it is just a blessing for me to see it with my own eyes. I'm very thankful to your shepherds for the kind invitation, allowing me to be here and spend this weekend with you. Uh, I count it a great blessing to spend time with, with God's people. It's like a family reunion. And I know many of you don't know me, and I don't know you, and this is kind of like a blind date. We're meeting each other for the first time, but I'm looking forward to getting to know you a lot better this weekend. In fact, as I've talked with many of you, we know people in common, whether it's relatives of mine or people that are down in Dallas, or there are some here I haven't seen in a long time, and I'm glad to see your faces. It's just good to be here. It's always great when we're together with God's people. So thank you for being here tonight. It's a treasure to be with Brother Tomley. I've known about Brother Tomley for a long time. His preaching and his reputation go far across the kingdom in his work, and I'm thankful for you, Brother, and all that you do. It's, it's a blessing for me to be with you this weekend, and it's a blessing to be with Tim. He might go by Timothy or Timothy G. I'm not really sure what he's calling himself here in uh, Rolling Hills, but to me, he is, he is Tim. When I met Tim, he was a soft, or he was a junior in college. We try to get that straight today. Junior in college in, in Chattanooga, fresh, wanting to be a lawyer, wanting to tear the world apart, and then to see him here today as a, a dynamic preacher. It's special. We started as just acquaintances and brothers in Christ, but we're, we're, we're friends and brothers in, in flesh, and I'm glad to be with him. I'm glad to spend this weekend with him, and I'm glad to spend it with you. I hope the things I have brought will be a blessing to you, and that we'll, we'll leave here from this weekend better than how we came. I want to start with a story I heard about a woman who turned 90 years old. And on her birthday, she had four sons who wanted to get her a special gift because, believe it or not, you only turn 90 once. She was a widower, and all of her sons had done very well. And so they decided to get her lavish, great gifts. Money was no object. Son number one bought her a brand new mansion, huge house, lots of rooms, really ritzy. Son number two bought her an in-home, state-of-the-art theater. Big screen, the bucket seats, you know, in the rows, and the popcorn maker in the back. Newest things. Son number three bought her a brand new Mercedes. Mercedes-Benz. Yeah, really nice, the big wheels, cherry red, fancy car. Son number four knew how much she loved the Bible, but she couldn't really read anymore. And so he heard about these monks that lived in this distant village, and they trained parrots to quote the scripture. All you would have to do is just say the verse, and the parrot would squawk out that verse. But you know there are a lot of verses in the Bible, and so that would take a long time, and so that bird was pretty expensive. But again, it's mom. Nothing's too expensive for mom. So all the gifts were given to mother. She moved into her new house, and she sat down starting to write her thank you notes. And it was a little something like this. Uh, to son number one, thank you so much for the new house. I really only use three rooms, but you have tripled the work I need to keep this whole house clean. Thanks for the thought, love, mom. To son number two, she said, dear son, thank you for the theater. I have lost my sight and my hearing. All the people I would share it with are dead. I don't imagine I'll ever use the room. Thanks for the thought, love, mom. To son number three, she wrote, dear son, thank you for the brand new car. The state took away my license I don't remember how long ago. It sure is pretty. I would like to drive it. I don't imagine I'll ever use it. Thanks for the thought, love, Mom. But the son number four, she wrote down, she said, Dear son, you out of all your brothers put the most thought and care and attention into your gift, and I loved it. The chicken was delicious. <laughs> don't you love that? It's an expensive chicken. <laughs> I love that story. I love it because it illustrates something we all struggle with. Sometimes it's hard to know the value of something that you have. 
right in front of you. Right? I mean, how many of you have seen the show American Pickers? And you have these people who have things in their attics or in their garages, and they don't know what it is. But when these, pin, these, these people come along, they realize, well, you have something that's really valuable, really worthwhile. We all struggle with that. Sometimes it's not stuff that we, we worry about trying to figure out how much it costs or, or, or its value. Sometimes our struggle when determining worth and value is about people, finding worth within myself or seeing worth and value in others. This story we're reading tonight, found in Matthew 8 and in Luke 7, same story told from two perspectives, it's all about worth. It's all about value. You see, Jesus takes something that we all struggle with, trying to determine the value of people and others, and he turns it on us. He helps us see what real value and worth is all about. We're going to begin in Matthew 8, starting in verse 1, when it says, Jesus, he came down from the mountain. Large crowds followed him. And the leper came down and bowed down before him and said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing to be cleansed. Immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see, that, see to it that you tell no one, but go show yourself to the priest and present your, the offering that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Verse 5, when Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, imploring him and saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion said, Lord, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. But you say the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go. And he goes. And to another, come. And he comes. And to my slave, do this. And he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said to the centurion, Go, it shall be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed that very moment. Now turn over, keep your marker here, and turn over to Luke 7. And let's read Luke's account. Because Luke gives us some details that Matthew doesn't. Sort of fills in the story for us. This is Luke 7, beginning in verse 1. It says, When he completed all his discourse in the hearing of, of the people, he went to Capernaum. And a centurion slave, who was highly regarded by him, was sick and about to die. When he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his slave. And when they came to Jesus, they earnestly implored him, saying, He's worthy for you to grant this to him, for he loves our nation. And it was he who built us our synagogue. Now Jesus started on his way with them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. For this reason, I do not consider myself worthy to come to you. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him. And he turned and said to the crowd that was following him, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. I love this story. I love the centurion. I mean, what an incredible man. Centurion was an officer in the Roman army, placed in charge of of a hundred soldiers. And so he was a man of, of great prominence and power, likely a man of great wealth, likely a man who was well-known, not only in Rome, but well-known in those, especially in the city in which he's in, and here in Capernaum. 
This man finds himself, this, this Gentile centurion finds himself in a Jewish city of Capernaum. And we find some things that just, at least to begin, seem backwards culturally. That's what we're starting on your sheet. There's a couple things that you see from this, from this context in reading it that just, it wouldn't have happened at that time. Like number one, what you see is, is a Gentile centurion seeking help from a Jewish teacher. Jews and Gentiles did not get along. In fact, the greatest struggle written throughout the letters in the New Testament is a struggle between Jews and Gentiles. They just would not get along. And so here's a Gentile seeking help from a Jew. You wouldn't do that. But you also have a centurion who's seeking medical help from, not a doctor, from a teacher. Now think about that from, from a soldier's perspective. A fellow Gentile's perspective, you're seeking medical help, not from a doctor, not from a surgeon, but from this man who claims to be a teacher. Well, that just kind of seems backwards, doesn't it? According to the thought at that time. You also have a centurion who's seeking help, not for a family member, not for merely a friend. It was for a slave. Did you notice that in Luke's account? It wasn't his son. It was his servant. At this time, servants meant nothing. They were the lowest level of society. And so if you had a slave who was sick, you wouldn't bother going to the doctor. You wouldn't bother paying medicine. You would let him die and buy another one. They're expendable. And yet here is a master who saw great worth and value in his slave. He himself went out of his way to go and find this Jesus to try and bring him back to heal someone who he felt was worth it. Worth the time, worth the trouble, worth extending beyond the cultural boundaries at that time. And then you see something that's most puzzling about this man, but it's also one of the most incredible things about him, is that he was humble. Matthew's account makes it seem like he's talking with Jesus. The centurion is discussing with Jesus, but Luke tells us he wasn't even there. At first he sends the elders to go and talk to Jesus, and then when Jesus gets close, did you notice who was talking? He sends friends out of the house to go and talk to Jesus. And it wasn't, I'm a centurion, I, I don't do that. I have people who talk to that for me. I'm too big for this, I'm too important. Someone go talk to him. No, did you notice twice he says in Luke's account, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. That's why I sent someone else. I'm not worthy to talk to you, to even be in your presence. And so here's a man who would have been highly regarded, who would have held wealth and fame, and yet he's completely humbled before, before this man named Jesus. And how did all this take place? Where did all this begin? Did you notice in Luke's account, Luke 7 and verse 3, that he reached out to Jesus because he had seen Jesus do this before. He had seen Jesus heal someone and thought, aha, I need to go to him. The faith he had was because of what he heard. Based on what he heard, he believed. Think about this. He believed some incredible things based on just what he heard alone. Like number one, he believed that Jesus had the power to cure whatever it was his, his, his servant had. Matthew said that he was paralyzed. Dr. Luke says he was on the point of death. And this man believed Jesus has done some incredible things before. Surely if he comes and he hears my plea, he can heal this man too. But did you notice back in Matthew's account? Go with me back to Matthew chapter 8. Not only did he believe that Jesus could heal this man... He believed that Jesus didn't even have to be in the room. This is Matthew chapter 8. He says in verse 8, the centurion said, Lord, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. Think about that. Has he seen Jesus do that before? No, he's not even seen Jesus. This is what, I've, what he's heard from. All hearsay. And yet he had enough faith to say, not only can you do this, not only can you cure him, you don't even have to be here. Just say the word and you have enough power that you can heal him wherever you are. Brethren, that's faith. That's real faith. 
And after, because of his faith and because of his request, Matthew's account ends with these words in Matthew 8 and verse 13. Jesus said to the centurion, Go, it shall be done for you as you have believed. You believed it. You put your faith in me. This is happening as, as you thought it would, as you believed it would. This is such an incredible story, such an incredible account. i got three things for you to think about tonight that I think we can pull from here about who we are, about who God wants us to be, and then about how God defines real worth, value. Here's our first thought. The first thought is this. The centurion understood his position before God. In other words, in understanding who he was, that came about because he understood who Jesus is. He knew who he was and understanding who the Son of God was. Because look again in Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8, he says in verse 9, I also am a man under authority with soldiers under me. Look at that word. I also am a man under authority. Also, too. Me, too. Here's what he says. In every job, in every position, there are those who are over and those who are under. So think of a business. You have your employees. You have your managers. You have your bosses, you have your CEOs. There are those who give orders and those who take orders in every position. Centurion said, I also am a man under authority with some under me. He was under Caesar. Caesar could say, go fight, and he would have to go fight. Go kill, and he would have to go and kill. But he was also a centurion. He had a hundred people underneath him. He was a man under authority with people under him. And he said, Jesus, that's you. I also am a man under authority. That is, Jesus, you exercise under authority. It's clear you came here with a mission, with a plan. I mean, think about it. How often in Jesus' teaching was the little phrase predicated, I came not to do my will, but the will of the Father. John 6, 38. I came not doing my own will, but the Father's will. It was clear by how he taught and acted. He came with, with a purpose. He came with a mission. He came following else, someone else's orders. But it was also clear by the way that Jesus taught and the way that he lived, he had all authority. And so think for a moment, at the end of that Sermon on the Mount, that incredible sermon that he preached on, up on that mountain, it was clear to everyone that he was teaching as one who had authority. Now the Jews would teach this way. The Jews would teach by saying, we know this is true because there's an old teacher, an old rabbi we used to read, and they say this, and so we know it's true. They would quote old teachers or old rabbis. You know what Jesus did in the, in the Sermon on the Mount? Eighteen times he says, I say to you. Well, who are you? Who are you to give the law? Who are you to command us? Who are you to say what we ought to do? He taught as if he had authority. Think about this one. Do you remember the account when Jesus was in that house and it was so packed and no one could get in? And they let that man down through the roof, the paralyzed man. And he expected Jesus to cure his, his legs, but instead the first thing he does is he forgives his sins. And oh, they're mad. You can't do that. Only God can forgive sins. You're, you're not God. You can't do that. And so Jesus says to them, this is the book of Matthew chapter 9, verse 6, in order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, rise, take up your bed and, and go home. In other words, if only God can forgive sins, what is easier for you to realize I am God? To forgive his sins or to tell him to get up and go home? Hey, get up and go home. Do you see? Authority. Authority is a position to give permission to allow someone to do what it is you're asking them to do, to give orders and commands. I want you to think about this for a moment. Imagine Tim let me borrow the keys to his fancy new Jeep. And I was driving out here on the road out here going 90 miles an hour, coming to the building. I get pulled over. And I goes, buddy, you're going 90 miles an hour. I said, I know. I had permission. What are you going to say? 
He's probably going to say, no, you didn't. But in my story, he'll say, okay, who gave you that permission? And I say, Timothy Ruffin did. He said, if I don't go faster, we're not going to be here on time. What would he say if I said that? Tim Ruffin said I could break the law. What is he going to say? He can't do that. He can't tell you to break the law. He is not in the position to give you the right to break the law. That's authority. Here is Jesus, and he is giving orders. He is giving law. He is giving rule because we know it. We know at the end of the Gospels, what did he tell the apostles? All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. He has all authority. And so how do we see that? He speaks and the wind obey. He steps and the water submits to his feet. He speaks and illness, disease, it's gone. He had all authority. And so this man, this centurion, he understood who Jesus was. But I want you to notice something. Go back to our account here, Matthew 8. I want you to notice what he calls Jesus. So here's our statement. He knew who he was and knowing who Christ is. So in Matthew chapter 8, notice in verse 6, when he comes and he speaks to Jesus, what does he call him? He doesn't say teacher. He doesn't say rabbi. He doesn't say sir. He doesn't call him Jesus. What, what title does he give him? Four-letter word, Lord. You know what Lord means? Lord means master. Think about that for a moment. You belong to Rome. Rome is the kingdom, the empire over the world. You have one master, and that is Caesar. But he understood something here. I recognize in this man there is someone greater, stronger, having more authority than the strongest man or empire in the world. He deserves my allegiance. He deserves my commitment. He is my Lord. He understood who he was and understanding who Christ is, Lord. And in fact, he knows in verse 9, he understood what the response is to this authority. When I say go, they go. And I say come, and they come. And I say do this. And guess what? They do that. Their response to authority is this, obedience and submission. When he commands, we go. That's what Paul taught. Taking that language of soldiers, he says that no soldier in active service entangles himself in the everyday affairs or the everyday life so that he may please the one who enlists him as a soldier. That's the aim of those under authority. I want to do what pleases my Lord. I want to do what pleases my master, the one who is over me. I'm seeking to do what pleases him. Brethren, that's the New Testament. How often do we find that phrase, do what it is that pleases God? Right? Let's put it up here. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 9. Therefore we have as our ambition, our aim, our purpose in life, that whether we are home or absent, we're going to be pleasing to Him. That's our calling in life. Whatever I'm doing, I'm going to be pleasing to God. I want to please my Lord and my Master. And so Paul would say in Ephesians 5 verse 10 that we're trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. If that's our goal in life, I want to please God. I'm always going to learn. I'm always going to keep on growing and trying to understand what does God want from me? What makes Him happy? What makes Him pleased? What is it that, that satisfies my God? Now here's where trouble comes in. Trouble comes into play when I stop trying to learn what pleases God and I do what pleases me thinking surely it's got to please God too. Instead of trying to learn what pleases the Lord, I just do what pleases Jordan Shouse thinking I know God's got to like it too. So imagine with me for a moment, you got a, a wife, a woman, who hates outdoors. She hates it. She doesn't really like sports. She's a vegetarian. What she really likes is a comfortable evening at home with her husband on the couch eating a salad, watching a rom-com, watching a romantic comedy. And so for her birthday, her husband gets her 
season tickets to the University of Tennessee football games with a meat package that's going to come by at every game, the big hot dogs and the bratwurst and, and the big turkey leg. And he says, I strike gold. She's going to love this. So he gives it to her on her birthday. He says, happy birthday, honey. You're welcome. And he gives it to her. What is she going to say? You don't know me at all. I hate outdoors. I hate football. I don't like the color of the Tennessee football team especially. And guess what? I hate meat. I'm a vegetarian. You don't know me at all. A question for you. Think about this for a moment. Is it possible for us to say we know God? To claim it. To believe we know God. And yet not know him at all. Paul said so. Paul said that there are some who say they know God. Well, they claim it. They believe it. But by the things they do, by their deeds, they, they make it clear. They make it evident that, that they're detestable and disobedient. They're worthless for any good deeds. They, they deny him by the way that they live. They claim they know God, but by the way they live, they, they show they don't know him at all. Because the Apostle John said to know God is to keep his commandments. If you know God, you're going to do what he says. You're going to do the things that pleases him. You know what that means? Just calling God my God doesn't make him my God. Just calling Jesus my Lord doesn't make him my Lord. That's what Jesus said. Why, why do you call me Lord and not do the things that I ask of you? Why do you call me Lord and not do the things I've commanded you? Just because I call him my Lord, just because I say he's my God doesn't make it so. If he is an authority, if he is king, I'm going to do the things that pleases him. But here's another thought. Just because I do things that are good and I do it for God, that doesn't mean he wants it. Nor does it mean he's pleased with it, right? Isn't that Matthew 7? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Are those good deeds? Yeah, they're good deeds. What's the problem? I didn't ask for that. I didn't ask for the football game. I didn't ask for the meat package. I didn't ask for, for, for the, the, the outing. I didn't ask for the tickets. I didn't ask for you to do these things. You're not listening to me. You're not obeying me. You who practice lawlessness without knowledge. You're not following the law. You stop listening. You've, stopped, you've stopped obeying. You stop trying to find out the things that follow me or that, that please me, that satisfy me. Because Paul said in the book of Colossians chapter 3, verse 17, whatever you do, you do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. You know what the real problem is? Everyone wants a Savior. No one wants a Lord. Everyone wants Jesus to save them. No one wants Jesus to tell them what it is that they need to do. And I think the real issue here that many fall into is this. They confuse the difference between having a close relationship with God, an intimate relationship with God, and having a casual relationship with God. And there's a difference. It's a profound difference. I saw this picture a couple years ago that said this way. God's not your, your homeboy, your dude, or your bro. But he is a creator. He's the upholder. The everlasting, the Lord of glory, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the first and the last, the Alpha and Omega, the, the Lord and Master, Savior, Redeemer, and on and on we can go. No, he's, he, he's not your bro. He's not your homeboy. Yes, our, our relationship is absolutely personal. He allows you to call him Father. There's nothing more personal than that, Father and Son. And yes, Christ invites us to call him friend. There's sympathy. There's understanding. But he's not my bro. 
I understand who I am when I understand who he is. This centurion understood who he was in light of understanding who Christ is. He is Lord, I am servant. He is king, I am his slave. I am here to obey and to serve him. One thing that the centurion can teach us, brethren, we will know who we are and who it is we are to continue to be when we remember who he is and will always be. Here's another thought for us. The centurion understood his responsibility towards others. Go to, to Luke 7. Go back to Luke 7. And just notice a phrase here. I just love the phrase that, that's mentioned here, Luke 7 and verse 2. It says, A centurion slave who was highly regarded by him. He was sick and about to die. Highly regarded. I love that. Because at that time, all the things that existed within that culture would have kept this man from speaking and stepping and acting out on his slaves, on his slaves' behalf. There's a cultural difference. There's a racial difference. Here's a Gentile seeking help likely for a Jew. Here's a monetary difference. A rich man seeking help for a poor man. Here's a status difference. A centurion seeking help for a slave. And did you notice? None of it mattered. It didn't matter if the slave didn't have any money. It didn't matter if he was of a different race or different class or different status. You know what mattered? He's dying. He's dying and he needs help if he's going to live. I don't know about you, if you've felt it, if you've picked up on it from our news and our social media, our culture seems to be completely overwhelmed with focusing on the things that make us different. And they allow those differences to be the very, the very focus of what divides us and separates us. And they start drawing these labels and drawing these boundaries that if you don't fit into a certain box of my expectations and you're different and you're lesser and you're, you're not welcome in a certain area. And so for some it is about white class and blue class, how much money you have or you don't have. For some it's race. Where are you from? What language do you speak? What color is your skin? For some it's about education. Did you go to college? Did you not go to college? And I imagine, brethren, if we took the time and went around this building and we talked to each one of us, we could find a whole host of differences from each one of us to one another. But brethren, none of the things that divide us will ever compare to the one thing that unites us. Our faith in Christ. Our need in a Savior who came to earth. Our trust in Him, our following to Him, our commitment to Him. I love the statement that a brother made a couple years ago, and that is this. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. I love that. You know what it means? There's no great saints. There's no superiority in the kingdom of Christ. It doesn't matter who you are or where you're from or what you've done. There is one who is great. And he's the one lofted and exalted on the cross at Calvary. All the rest of us, were the same. We need him. And so Paul could say it this way. It doesn't matter if you are Jew or a Greek or slave or free or male or female. What else can we say? It doesn't matter if you're a Republican or a Democrat. It doesn't matter if you're rich or you're poor. It doesn't matter if you're white or black or yellow or Asian or Indian. We're all one in Christ Jesus, and that's what matters most. Instead of focusing on all the things that divide us, here's a man who saw the one thing this man needed. He needs life. He needs Christ. And so he went. He went to the Savior. And we can allow all of our differences to divide us and separate us, or we can come together on the one thing that really matters. We need a Savior. 
We need a Lord. We need to put our faith and our trust in him. And in his kingdom, brethren, greatness is not defined by climbing on the backs of one another and saying, Lord, look how good I am. Look at my talents. I'm a lot better than he is. I pray a lot better than she does. My attendance record is a lot better than hers. That's not greatness in his kingdom. Christ said that those who wish to be great in his kingdom will serve. Greatness, he says, those who wish to become great, those will be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to serve, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. I think one of the more, more powerful lessons from this, this context, brethren, is the man who lived, love your neighbor as yourself. It's the man who demonstrated, treat others the way you want to be treated. Is the man, the master, who served his slave. Evangelism, in so many ways, is that. Being a centurion who finds common ground with a slave, finding common ground with a neighbor, and taking that neighbor to Jesus. I guarantee you have people around you. You have a lot in common with your neighbors, with your family members, with your friends who don't know Christ. And that's thing sometimes we often think. I may not know your suffering and your pain, but I know pain. I may not know your loss, what you have lost, but I know loss. And I may not know your exact need, but I know what it's like to be in need. And I know the answer. And I know your answer to your problems. Can I be like a centurion and point others, despite all the things that divide us, point us to the one thing that unites us, and that is we need Jesus. My neighbor needs Jesus. My friends need Jesus. I have needed Jesus. Can I be the one who takes them to Jesus? And that really is, is the heart of the story. Because when we get to Jesus, Jesus is the one who defines worth. He is the one who reminds us and defines us of worth. I want you to notice this. Go back to our, our context here in Luke 7. Did you notice all the words that we use to describe worth or value? Let's point them out again. All the words that are used to describe worth or value. Verse 2 of Luke 7, it says, The centurion slave was highly regarded by him. Highly regarded. He saw great value or worth in his slave. When the elders come to Jesus, they say to him in verse 4, He is worthy for you to grant this to him, for he loves our nation and is he who built his, our synagogue. You kind of hear the idea, you, you need to come. He's a really good guy. He's done a lot of good things. And then when Jesus comes near, do you see worth? Because two times he says to him in verse 6, He says, Lord, do not trouble yourself any further, for I, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. For this reason, in verse 7, I did not consider myself worthy to come to you. Do you hear that word worth over and over again? He loved his servant. He was worth saving. The elders came and said, this man's worth your trouble. He's worth you coming to heal. And then when Jesus comes there, the centurion says, I'm, I'm not worth it. I'm not worth you coming to my home. No, not, not, not my house. I'm not worthy for you to come near. It's all about worth. Here's a question. How do we define worth? How do we go about finding what, what makes us valuable, important? That's a great question, isn't it? For some people, it is money. How much money do you have in the bank account? How much do you own? For some people, it's their stuff. How big is your house? How big is your TV? How new is your car? Do you have all the new eye gadgets? Do you, do you have a lot of stuff? For some people, their, their wealth, 
or their fame or their, their job is a source of their importance or their value. For some people, it's family. Do you come from a well-known family? They just hear the name, Shouse. Ooh, I know him. I know where he's from. I know his family. Is that, is that it? Is it family? The family status? Is it the school you went to, alma mater? And you're just proud. I came from this school. I was here. I wear all the t-shirts. I go to all the games. I've got the ring. I mean, I, that is me. I am from this person. Does that define your worth and your value in life? Because here's a whole group of people trying to express worth in different ways. And Jesus diffuses it all. Because when he finally comes and he speaks about the centurion, not to him, remember, he's not here, but he speaks about him. Did you notice what he said? If you're someone who marks in your Bible or highlights your stars, this is a good verse to do it. This is Luke 7, verse 9. When Jesus heard this, he marveled. He marveled at him and turned and said to the crowd that was following him, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. Marveled, amazed, impressed. Brethren, is that not the question to ask? What is it that impresses your God? What is it that stops the Savior in his steps? What is it that marvels the Master? Here it is. This is the verse. You notice it's not the fact this guy was a centurion. Whoa. He's a really famous dude. It's not because he was wealthy or it's not because he did some really good things. There's one thing that turned the head of the Savior. What was it? Faith. You had such great faith. What is it that impresses your God about you? What is it that makes him impressed, marvel at you? It's not the things you own. It's not how big your house is. It's not all the charitable deeds that you can do with your goods. It's your faith. Your faith in him. If I go back, let's end in Matthew's account, Matthew chapter 8. Because in Matthew chapter 8, Jesus is the one who starts to express worth. Everyone's trying to tell Jesus who is worthy. He is the one who defines worth. And he does it in an interesting way. I don't know about you, but when you were reading this, at first there's a section here in this context that might seem out of place. You read it and you think, I don't know why that's there. It seems, seems like someone just added that in. It fits beautifully. We're going down to verse 11. Jesus said, I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness, and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He's painting the picture, if you will, of this incredible dinner party. And at this table are some pretty distinguished guests. There's Jesus himself, the author of faith. There's Abraham, the father of faith. There's Isaac. And there's Jacob, those who receive the promise by faith. It's all about faith. It's a table full of faith. He says, those who will come and recline at my table, dine at my table, it's not going to be because of what family you're from. It's not going to be just because you're Jew. In fact, he says in the next verse, there's going to be some from the Jewish family, they're not going to make it at this table. They're not going to make it to this feast. It's not because of your family. It's not because of your bloodline. It's not because of your history. Those who make it to this table, they're going to be men and women who come from all over, not just Israel, east and west. They're going to be people a lot like this man, men and women of faith. Is that not incredible? Here's a man who says, Jesus, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. I'm not worthy for you to come in my home. And Jesus says, I want men and women like you dining at my table. What is it that gets an invitation to Jesus' table? That's not who you know. It's not how much you own. It's faith. It's not what Peter said. Oh, the most, 
most valuable thing you own, brethren, more precious than gold, something that will not perish through, through time or storm or tragedy, the one most precious thing you own is your faith. Your faith. Is that not what God is looking for us in, in, in us, looking for in us? Oh, in this hard time, he's going through a real tough storm. Is he going to trust in my words? She has faced the wilderness on her own. Is she going to trust in my promises? It's been a long time since Jesus came to earth. Do they still trust in my words that I will return? Do they still believe in me? They live in a society that's changing their views on what everything is right. Do they still trust? Do they still believe? Do they still put their faith in me? He's looking for faith. What marvels the master, brethren, is faith. In fact, there's a time in Mark's account, he marveled again about faith. When he went home, he marveled at his hometown because, not of their great faith, because they didn't believe. He went to a place that should have known better. They knew him. They had seen him grown up. And yet he returns and he marvels because they didn't believe. And it makes you wonder, when Jesus returns, what will he marvel at? At the faith I have in him, ready and expectant for his return, or the unbelief? I just didn't trust in him. I don't know about you, but I, I can sympathize with that centurion. Because Jesus, the master... If you really understand who he is and he wants to come to your home, that's a pretty daunting thing. I'm not worthy to come into, for you to come into my house. There's a time in, when I lived in the Indiana area, I had a friend who invited me to this restaurant, and I should have known better. I should have looked it up. I do it now. But he said, I want you to meet me at this place at this time and come, and, and we're going to have a good lunch. It was called the Fountain Room. Well, I walk into this place, and there's nothing but these ritzy, big chandeliers all over the ceiling. This huge, big piano being played. Everyone is wearing suits and dresses, and they're eating food. I can't pronounce. I don't know where it came from. And I'm wearing a polo and jeans. And I'm sitting there. I'm just fiddling with my food on the plate. And my friend notices. He goes, what's wrong with you? I said, man, I don't belong here. I eat at Chick-fil-A. I mean, I, I eat at McDonald's. I, I, I don't go to places like this. I, I don't eat at places like this. I just, I don't belong here. He leaned over and said, you belong here because I invited you. And here's a centurion saying, I'm not worthy, Jesus. I'm not worthy for you to come to my house. I'm not worthy for you to, to even come into my home. And he says, no, I'm looking for men and women like you. And they're going to come to my home. And they're going to sit at my table. And they're going to eat with me. And I can only imagine being there in the presence of God and seeing, seeing some greats that we've read about for a long time and seeing them face to face. can only imagine seeing the Lord himself and just, and just feeling like, I don't belong here. I don't belong here, not me. And hear the Lord say, you belong here because I invited you. Heaven is a prepared place for prepared people. And he's prepared a way for you. He's invited you. What will impress God about you? What will get you an invitation to that table? Faith. Faith. Do you believe in God? Do you believe in His words?
If you're here tonight and you've, you've started your journey with Christ and you need some help, maybe just staying with Him. Maybe you've kind of fallen away from your walk with Him and it's been a while since you've, you've been in a place like this and you have some questions. We'd like to help you tonight. We'd like to help you. Maybe you're here and you're needing some prayers for encouragement to, to get back and, and to continue walking with God. Or maybe you're here and you're ready to start your journey with Christ. You could just be here and having some needs, some spiritual needs, trying to walk right with God. And we'd like to help you. We'd love to help you. We have a song ready right now for that very reason. And so if we can help you tonight in any way, these pews are for you. Come on forward as we stand and as we sing.